Section 4 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canan. Dawn 2, Part 2. There were now times of extremely straitened circumstances at home. They became more and more frequent. They lived meagerly then. No one was more sensible of it than Jean Christophe. His father saw nothing. He was served first, and there was always enough for him. He talked noisily, and roared with laughter at his own jokes, and he never noticed his wife's glances as she gave a forced laugh while she watched him helping himself. When he passed the dish, it was more than half empty. Louisa helped the children, two potatoes each. When it came to Jean Christophe's turn, there were sometimes only three left, and his mother was not helped. He knew that beforehand. He had counted them before they came to him. Then he summoned up courage and said carelessly, Only one, mother. She was a little put out. Two, like the others. No, please, only one. Aren't you hungry? No, I'm not very hungry. But she, too, only took one, and they peeled them carefully, cut them up in little pieces, and tried to eat them as slowly as possible. His mother watched him. When he had finished, Come, take it. No, mother. But you are ill? I am not ill, but I have eaten enough. Then his father would reproach him with being obstinate and take the last potato for himself. But Jean Christophe learned that trick, and he used to keep it on his plate for Ernest, his little brother who was always hungry, and watched him out of the corner of his eyes from the beginning of dinner and ended by asking, Aren't you going to eat it? Give it me then, Jean Christophe. Oh, how Jean Christophe detested his father! How he hated him for not thinking of them! or for not even dreaming that he was eating their share. He was so hungry that he hated him, and would gladly have told him so, but he thought in his pride that he had no right, since he could not earn his own living. His father had earned the bread that he took. He himself was good for nothing. He was a burden on everybody. He had no right to talk. Later on he would talk, if there were any later on. Oh, he would die of hunger first! He suffered more than another child would have done from these cruel fasts. His robust stomach was in agony. Sometimes he trembled because of it. His head ached. There was a hole in his chest, a hole which turned and widened, as if a gimlet were being twisted in it. But he did not complain. He felt his mother's eyes upon him and assumed an expression of indifference. Louisa, with a clutching at her heart, understood vaguely that her little boy was denying himself so that the others might have more. She rejected the idea, but always returned to it. She dared not investigate it or ask Jean Christophe if it were true, for, if it were true, what could she do? She had been used to privation since her childhood. What is the use of complaining when there is nothing to be done? She never suspected, indeed, she, with her frail health and small needs, that the boy might suffer more than herself. 
She did not say anything, but once or twice, when the others were gone, the children to the street, Melchior about his business, she asked her eldest son to stay to do her some small service. Jean Christophe would hold her skein while she unwound it. Suddenly she would throw everything away and draw him passionately to her. She would take him on her knees, although he was quite heavy, and would hug and hug him. He would fling his arms round her neck, and the two of them would weep desperately, embracing each other. "'My poor little boy! Mother! Mother!' They said no more, but they understood each other. It was some time before Jean Christophe realized that his father drank. Melchior's intemperance did not, at least in the beginning, exceed tolerable limits. It was not brutish. It showed itself rather by wild outbursts of happiness. He used to make foolish remarks and sing loudly for hours together as he drummed on the table, and sometimes he insisted on dancing with Louisa and the children. Jean Christophe saw that his mother looked sad. She would shrink back and bend her face over her work. She avoided the drunkard's eyes and used to try gently to quiet him when he said coarse things that made her blush. But Jean Christophe did not understand, and he was in such need of gaiety that these noisy homecomings of his father were almost a festival to him. The house was melancholy, and these follies were a relaxation for him. He used to laugh heartily at Melchior's crazy antics and stupid jokes. He sang and danced with him, and he was put out when his mother in an angry voice ordered him to cease. How could it be wrong, since his father did it? Although his ever-keen observation, which never forgot anything it had seen, told him that there were in his father's behavior several things which did not accord with his childish and imperious sense of justice, yet he continued to admire him. A child has so much need of an object of admiration. Doubtless it is one of the eternal forms of self-love. When a man is, or knows himself to be, too weak to accomplish his desires and satisfy his pride, as a child he transfers them to his parents, or, as a man who has failed, he transfers them to his children. They are, or shall be, all that he dreamed of being, his champions, his avengers, and in this proud abdication in their favor, love and egoism are mingled so forcefully and yet so gently as to bring him keen delight. Jean Christophe forgot all his grudges against his father and cast about to find reasons for admiring him. He admired his figure, his strong arms, his voice, his laugh, his gaiety, and he shone with pride when he heard praise of his father's talents as a virtuoso, or when Melchior himself recited with some amplification the eulogies he had received. He believed in his father's boasts, and looked upon him as a genius, as one of his grandfather's heroes. One evening, about seven o'clock, he was alone in the house. His little brothers had gone out with Jean-Michel. Louisa was washing the linen in the river. The door opened, and Melchior plunged in, he was hatless and disheveled. He cut a sort of caper to cross the threshold and then plumped down in a chair by the table. Jean Christophe began to laugh, thinking it was a part of one of the usual buffooneries, and he approached him. But as soon as he looked more closely at him, the desire to laugh left him. 
Melchior sat there with his arms hanging and looking straight in front of him, seeing nothing with his eyes blinking. His face was crimson, his mouth was open, and from it there gurgled every now and then a silly laugh. Jean-Christophe stood stock still. He thought at first that his father was joking, but when he saw that he did not budge, he was panic-stricken. "'Papa! Papa!' he cried. Melchior went on gobbling like a fowl. Jean-Christophe took him by the arm in despair and shook him with all his strength. "'Papa! Dear Papa! Answer me! Please! Please!' Melchior's body shook like a boneless thing, and all but fell. His head flopped towards Jean-Christophe. He looked at him and babbled incoherently and irritably. When Jean-Christophe's eyes met those clouded eyes, he was seized with panic terror. He ran away to the other end of the room and threw himself on his knees by the bed and buried his face in the clothes. He remained so for some time. Melchior swung heavily on the chair, sniggering. Jean-Christophe stopped his ears so as not to hear him and trembled. What was happening within him was inexpressible. It was a terrible upheaval. Terror, sorrow, as though for someone dead, someone dear and honored. No one came. They were left alone. Night fell and Jean-Christophe's fear grew as the minutes passed. He could not help listening and his blood froze as he heard the voice that he did not recognize. The silence made it all the more terrifying. The limping clock beat time for the senseless babbling. He could bear it no longer. He wished to fly. But he had to pass his father to get out, and Jean-Christophe shuddered at the idea of seeing those eyes again. It seemed to him that he must die if he did. He tried to creep on hands and knees to the door of the room. He could not breathe. He would not look. He stopped at the least movement from Melchior whose feet he could see under the table. One of the drunken man's legs trembled. Jean-Christophe reached the door. With one trembling hand he pushed the handle, but in his terror he let go. It shut to again. Melchior turned to look. The chair on which he was balanced toppled over. He fell down with a crash. Jean-Christophe, in his terror, had no strength left for flight. He remained glued to the wall, looking at his father stretched there at his feet, and he cried for help. His fall sobered Melchior a little. He cursed and swore and thumped on the chair that had played him such a trick. He tried vainly to get up, and then did manage to sit up with his back resting against the table, and he recognized his surroundings. He saw Jean-Christophe crying. He called him. Jean-Christophe wanted to run away. He could not stir. Melchior called him again, and as the child did not come, he swore angrily. Jean-Christophe went near him, trembling in every limb. Melchior drew the boy near him and made him sit on his knees. He began by pulling his ears and in a thick, stuttering voice delivered a homily on the respect due from a son to his father. Then he went off suddenly on a new train of thought and made him jump in his arms while he rattled off silly jokes. He wriggled with laughter. From that he passed immediately to melancholy ideas. He commiserated the boy and himself. He hugged him so that he was like to choke, covered him with kisses and tears, and finally rocked him in his arms, intoning the De Profundis. Jean-Christophe made no effort to break loose. He was frozen with horror, stifled against his father's bosom, feeling his breath, 
hiccuping and smelling of wine upon his face, wet with his kisses and repulsive tears, he was in an agony of fear and disgust. He would have screamed, but no sound would come from his lips. He remained in this horrible condition for an age, as it seemed to him, until the door opened and Louisa came in with a basket of linen on her arm. She gave a cry, let the basket fall, rushed at Jean Christophe, and with a violence which seemed incredible in her, she wrenched Melchior's arm, crying, Drunken! Drunken wretch! Her eyes flashed with anger. Jean Christophe thought his father was going to kill her, but Melchior was so startled by the threatening appearance of his wife that he made no reply, and began to weep. He rolled on the floor, he beat his head against the furniture, and said that she was right, that he was a drunkard, that he brought misery upon his family, and was ruining his poor children, and wished he were dead. Louisa had contemptuously turned her back on him. She carried Jean Christophe into the next room, and caressed him and tried to comfort him. The boy went on trembling, and did not answer his mother's questions. Then he burst out sobbing. Louisa bathed his face with water. She kissed him and used tender words, and wept with him. In the end they were both comforted. She knelt, and made him kneel by her side. They prayed to God to cure father of his disgusting habit, and make him the kind, good man that he used to be. Louisa put the child to bed. He wanted her to stay by his bedside and hold his hand. Louisa spent part of the night sitting on Jean Christophe's bed. He was feverish. The drunken man snored on the floor. Some time after that, one day at school, when Jean Christophe was spending his time watching the flies on the ceiling and thumping his neighbors to make them fall off the form, the schoolmaster, who had taken a dislike to him because he was always fidgeting and laughing and would never learn anything, made an unhappy illusion. Jean Christophe had fallen down himself, and the schoolmaster said he seemed to be like to follow brilliantly in the footsteps of a certain well-known person. All the boys burst out laughing, and some of them took upon themselves to point the illusion with comment both lucid and vigorous. Jean Christophe got up, livid with shame, seized his ink-pot, and hurled it with all his strength at the nearest boy whom he saw laughing. The schoolmaster fell on him and beat him. He was thrashed, made to kneel, and set to do an enormous imposition. He went home, pale and storming, though he said never a word. He declared frigidly that he would not go to school again. They paid no attention to what he said. Next morning, when his mother reminded him that it was time to go, he replied quietly that he had said that he was not going any more. In vain Louisa begged and screamed and threatened. It was no use. He stayed sitting in his corner, obstinate. Melchior thrashed him. He howled, but every time they bade him go after the thrashing was over, he replied angrily, No! They asked him at least to say why. He clenched his teeth and would not. Melchior took hold of him, carried him to school, and gave him into the master's charge. They set him on his form, and he began methodically to break everything within reach, his inkstand, his pen. He tore up his copybook and lesson-book, all quite openly, with his eye on the schoolmaster, provocative. They shut him up in a dark room. A few moments later the schoolmaster found him with his handkerchief tied round his neck, tugging with all his strength at the two ends of it. He was trying to strangle himself. They had to send him back.
Jean-Christophe was impervious to sickness. He had inherited from his father and grandfather their robust constitutions. They were not mollycoddles in that family. Well or ill, they never worried, and nothing could bring about any change in the habits of the two crafts, father and son. They went out winter and summer, in all weathers, and stayed for hours together out in rain or sun, sometimes bareheaded and with their coats open, from carelessness or bravado, and walked for miles without being tired, and they looked with pity and disdain upon poor Louisa, who never said anything, but had to stop. She would go pale, and her legs would swell, and her heart would thump. Jean-Christophe was not far from sharing the scorn of his mother. He did not understand people being ill. When he fell, or knocked himself, or cut himself, or burned himself, he did not cry, but he was angry with the thing that had injured him. His father's brutalities and the roughness of his little playmates, the urchins of the street, with whom he used to fight, hardened him. He was not afraid of blows, and more than once he returned home with bleeding nose and bruised forehead. One day he had to be wrenched away, almost suffocated, from one of these fierce tussles in which he had bowled over his adversary who was savagely banging his head on the ground. That seemed natural enough to him, for he was prepared to do unto others as they did unto himself. And yet he was afraid of all sorts of things, and although no one knew it, for he was very proud, nothing brought him so much suffering during a part of his childhood as these same terrors. For two or three years especially they gnawed at him like a disease. He was afraid of the mysterious something that lurks in darkness, evil powers that seemed to lie in wait for his life, the roaring of monsters which fearfully haunt the mind of every child and appear in everything that he sees, the relic, perhaps, of a form long dead, hallucinations of the first days after emerging from chaos, from the fearful slumber in his mother's womb, from the awakening of the larva from the depths of matter. He was afraid of the garret door, it opened on to the stairs and was almost always ajar. When he had to pass it, he felt his heart beating. He would spring forward and jump by it without looking. It seemed to him that there was someone or something behind it. When it was closed, he heard distinctly something moving behind it. That was not surprising, for there were large rats. But he imagined a monster with rattling bones and flesh hanging in rags, a horse's head, horrible and terrifying eyes, shapeless. He did not want to think of it, but did so in spite of himself. With trembling hand he would make sure that the door was locked, but that did not keep him from turning round ten times as he went downstairs. He was afraid of the night outside. Sometimes he used to stay late with his grandfather, or was sent out in the evening on some errand. Old Craft, lived a little outside the town in the last house on the Cologne Road. Between the house and the first lighted windows of the town there was a distance of two or three hundred yards, which seemed three times as long to Jean-Christophe. There were places where the road twisted and it was impossible to see anything. The country was deserted in the evening. The earth grew black, and the sky was awfully pale. When he came out from the hedges that lined the road and climbed up the slope, 
He could still see a yellowish gleam on the horizon, but it gave no light, and was more oppressive than the night. It made the darkness only darker. It was a deathly light. The clouds came down almost to earth. The hedges grew enormous and moved. The gaunt trees were like grotesque old men. The sides of the wood were stark white. The darkness moved. There were dwarfs sitting in the ditches, lights in the grass, fearful flying things in the air, shrill cries of insects coming from nowhere. Jean Christophe was always in anguish, expecting some fearsome or strange putting forth of nature. He would run, with his heart leaping in his bosom. When he saw the light in his grandfather's room, he would gain confidence. But worst of all was when old Kraft was not at home. That was most terrifying. The old house, lost in the country, frightened the boy even in daylight. He forgot his fears when his grandfather was there, but sometimes the old man would leave him alone and go out without warning him. Jean Christophe did not mind that. The room was quiet. Everything in it was familiar and kindly. There was a great white wooden bedstead. By the bedside was a great Bible on a shelf. Artificial flowers were on the mantelpiece, with photographs of the old man's two wives and eleven children, and at the bottom of each photograph he had written the date of birth and death. On the walls were framed texts, and vile chromolithographs of Mozart and Beethoven. A little piano stood in one corner, a great violoncello in another, rows of books higgledy-piggledy, pipes, and in the window pots of geraniums. It was like being surrounded with friends. The old man could be heard moving about in the next room, and planing or hammering and talking to himself, calling himself an idiot, or singing in a loud voice, improvising a potpourri of scraps of chants and sentimental leader, warlike marches, and drinking songs. Here was shelter and refuge. Jean Christophe would sit in the great armchair by the window, with a book on his knees, bending over the pictures and losing himself in them. The day would die down, his eyes would grow weary, and then he would look no more and fall into vague dreaming. The wheels of a cart would rumble by along the road. A cow would moo in the fields. The bells of the town, weary and sleepy, would ring the evening angelus. Vague desires, happy presentiments would awake in the heart of the dreaming child. Suddenly, Jean-Christophe would awake, filled with dull uneasiness. He would raise his eyes. Night! He would listen. Silence! His grandfather had just gone out. He shuddered. He leaned out of the window to try to see him. The road was deserted. Things began to take on a threatening aspect. Oh, God! If that should be coming! What? He could not tell. The fearful thing. The doors were not properly shut. The wooden stairs creaked as under a footstep. The boy leaped up, dragged the armchair, the two chairs and the table to the most remote corner of the room. He made a barrier of them, the armchair against the wall, a chair to the right, a chair to the left, and the table in front of him. In the middle he planted a pair of steps, and perched on top with his book and other books, like provisions against a siege, he breathed again having decided in his childish imagination that the enemy could not pass the barrier. That was not to be allowed.
but the enemy would creep forth, even from his book. Among the old books which the old man had picked up were some with pictures which made a profound impression on the child. They attracted and yet terrified him. There were fantastic visions, temptations of St. Anthony, in which skeletons of birds hung in bottles and thousands of eggs writhe like worms in disemboweled frogs and heads walk on feet and asses play trumpets and household utensils and corpses of animals walk gravely wrapped in great cloths bowing like old ladies jean christophe was horrified by them but always returned to them drawn on by disgust he would look at them for a long time and every now and then look furtively about him to see what was stirring in the folds of the curtains a picture of a flayed man in an anatomy book was still more horrible to him he trembled as he turned the page when he came to the place where it was in the book. This shapeless medley was grimly etched for him. The creative power inherent in every child's mind filled out the meagerness of the setting of them. He saw no difference between the daubs and the reality. At night they had an even more powerful influence over his dreams than the living things that he saw during the day. He was afraid to sleep. For several years, nightmares poisoned his rest. He wandered in cellars, and through the manhole saw the grinning flayed man entering. He was alone in a room, and he heard a stealthy footstep in the corridor. He hurled himself against the door to close it, and was just in time to hold the handle. But it was turned from the outside. He could not turn the key. His strength left him, and he cried for help. He was with his family, and suddenly their faces changed. They did crazy things. He was reading quietly, and he felt that an invisible being was all round him. He tried to fly, but felt himself bound. He tried to cry out, but he was gagged. A loathsome grip was about his neck. He awoke, suffocating, and with his teeth chattering, and he went on trembling long after he was awake. He could not be rid of his agony. The room in which he slept was a hole without door or windows. An old curtain, hung up by a curtain-rod over the entrance, was all that separated it from the room of his father and mother. The thick air stifled him. His brother, who slept in the same bed, used to kick him. His head burned, and he was a prey to a sort of hallucination in which all the little troubles of the day reappeared infinitely magnified. In this state of nervous tension, bordering on delirium, the least shock was an agony to him. The creaking of a plank terrified him. His father's breathing took on fantastic proportions. It seemed to be no longer a human breathing, and the monstrous sound was horrible to him. It seemed to him that there must be a beast sleeping there. The night crushed him. It would never end. It must always be so. He was lying there for months and months. He gasped for breath. He half raised himself on his bed, sat up, dried his sweating face with his shirt-sleeve. Sometimes he nudged his brother Rodolphe to wake him up, but Rodolphe moaned, drew away from him the rest of the bedclothes, and went on sleeping. So he stayed in feverish agony until a pale beam of light appeared on the floor below the curtain. 
This timorous paleness of the distant dawn suddenly brought him peace. He felt the light gliding into the room, when it was still impossible to distinguish it from darkness. Then his fever would die down, his blood would grow calm, like a flooded river returning to its bed. An even warmth would flow through all his body, and his eyes, burning from sleeplessness, would close in spite of himself. In the evening it was terrible to him to see the approach of the hour of sleep. He vowed that he would not give way to it, to watch the whole night through, fearing his nightmares. But in the end, weariness always overcame him, and it was always when he was least on his guard that the monsters returned. Fearful night! So sweet to most children, so terrible to some! He was afraid to sleep. He was afraid of not sleeping. Waking or sleeping, he was surrounded by monstrous shapes, the phantoms of his own brain, the larvae floating in the half-day and twilight of childhood, as in the dark chiaroscuro of sickness. But these fancied terrors were soon to be blotted out in the great fear, that which is in the hearts of all men, that fear which wisdom does in vain preen itself on forgetting or denying death. End of section 4